0: I think it would have to be a tannin because there's a lot of okay, them. Tannin tannin. they're online. These recordings are not edited. Oh, these recordings sorry. are not edited? Oh, not. You're not editing these recordings? Not me. But no, I'm not editing. Okay. <laughs> well then. I'm through it the first time. <laughs> I, just... <laughs> I guess I should think carefully before I speak now. Or not. All right. So, what have we learned, or more importantly, what do we remember learning? We talked about the, the heart and of the mind. Heart and the mind. The heart and the mind. And what did we what did we learn about abhaya? Emotional person. What? Emotional. Person. Benny has a notion that's true, that, that came up in the discussion. This is not being censored. It's okay, we're going to start the chapter again at the beginning. This then is the important principle regarding the divine service for the street, Ring the bell now. Important principle. The essential thing is to govern and rule. Remember in the discussion about governance and rule? Of the nature. We spoke about the nature of the heart. You remember what the nature of the heart is? What is the nature of our emotions? What? To be reactive. What do our emotions react to? Something good or bad for us. Something good or bad for us, right? And to govern that, right? So that that's not dictating the emotion. Rather, that our emotions are subordinate to to the mind, specifically to our awareness of Hashem, which which comes from the divine soul of the mind. Okay, wow. We summarized, what was it, four classes? A minute and a half? Fascinating. Okay. That is to say, what does it mean that is to say? What does that mean? What is this sentence going to be doing relative to the previous sentence? Contradicting No. Restating. Is there a point to restating something? Clarifying. Clarifying, right. It is going to be clarifying. We'll be adding more information to make the previous idea clearer. To rule the heart. By means of meditation in the mind on the greatness of the Ein Sof, blessed is he. Whereby his understanding will create a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord in his mind to make him turn away from the evil condemned by the Torah or the rabbis, or even a rabbinic, even from a minor rabbinic prohibition, heaven forbid, and the love of God in his heart, and the right part, with a fervent desire to cleave to him through the fulfillment of the precepts of the Torah and of the rabbis, and the study of the Torah, which is equivalent to them all. Okay. There's a lot in that sentence. Yes. Okay. So it says that we are supposed to rule the heart by means of what? How are we supposed to rule the heart? Meditation. In the mind. M- meditation in the mind. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to skip the phrase meditation in the mind for a moment. We're going to come back to it. And um, what are you supposed to meditate on? What does it say? Greatness. Okay, what is the Ein Sof? Blessed is he. Me. <laughs> I mean, that, that, he is blessed, but that doesn't tell me what is the ain' Sof. Aren't you very happy our translators translated the term "ain sof <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Ain't-sof means without end, or if you want to speak fancy English, it means infinite. Okay? And it is the Kabbalistic um, wording for God. Okay? So, for our purposes today, "ain sof just means? God, good. Blessed be he. All right. Now, what are you supposed to meditate on? The greatness of God. Alright, what is greatness? What does it mean the greatness of God? We're not supposed to meditate on God. We're not supposed to meditate on um, how beautiful God is. We're supposed to meditate on His greatness. What is greatness and what does it mean that God has some? Before we start meditating on it. Anyone want to take a stab at that? Have you ever described something as great? What do you mean by that? It evokes awe. It evokes awe. Well, I'm not gonna say that you're wrong, but I think that's more of a consequence in telling me what you mean by it, right? And would it be fair to say that you would say, it evokes awe because it's great, not the meaning of it's great, is that it evokes awe? Yeah. Okay, so then what is it, what do you mean when you say it is great? Or he is great, or she is great, or they are great, or we are great, or I am great. It's a positive thing. It's a positive thing. It's a great tragedy. Is it always a positive thing? No. Okay. We're not even learning chasidahs, we're learning English, come on. Magnanimous. It's magnanimous. I we'll go back to the great tragedy. <laughs> tragedy was so magnanimous. <laughs> it was willing to ruin everybody's life, not just a few people's. Magnitude. Magnitude. Okay. So he is a great scholar means that he has written a lot of books? Could be. So if he's not written a lot of books, he couldn't be a great scholar? He's amassed a lot of knowledge. How do you measure that? Like books, I can count how many books he's read. But I count how many books he's read? He who has read 20 books is a greater scholar than he that has read greater one book. Greater than that in comparison to others. In comparison to others, okay. So when we're saying great, we are comp- we are we are always comparing, right? Like to say something is great, we have to have a standard which we're comparing it to and... If it seems to be above that standard, we consider that thing to be great. That makes sense? Okay. So I want you guys to think for a few moments. Don't just answer right away. What is the problem with speaking about the greatness of God? Conceptually. We're going to have to work around. Saying we're, say we're supposed to meditate on the greatness of God, we can't meditate on the greatness of God without even having any understanding of what we mean by the term greatness of God. So greatness is you have some kind of standard. You like say this is above that. This is beyond that. This is more than that whatever that standard is, whatever that thing I'm measuring it against. What is the problem, conceptually, with having greatness of God? It has to be compared to a standard that we could comprehend. Very good. All right, that's what When you're thinking and meditate about the greatness of God, that means you're thinking of God in terms relative to something that you can understand. So... Are you getting an accurate sense of God that way? Yes or no? Oh, you can't understand God. So then what's the point of contemplating the greatness of God then? It's enough for us. What? <laughs> it brings you to this world for God. Okay, so that might be a good answer. If my interest was just having an emotional experience, the problem is like this. Um, let's say um, I walk down the street one day, and a little bird is all of a sudden is in the shade because I stop right over that bird. Yeah. And someone comes over to me and says Oh, I'm so inspired I'm so, filled with such admiration Rabbi Kaufman I've never seen something so amazing To stop and give shade to a little bird So it's not You know, it doesn't get sunstroke Wow, Rabbi Kaufman, that's so wonderful Now, I'm not going to deny That they're having these profound emotional experiences <laughs> But does that mean those are actually Really directed at me? Do you think Given that I'm probably somewhat normal and, you know, given the kind of temperament I portray in class, that I would stop in order to provide shade for a bird on the street. <laughs> oh, so, are they having emotions? Are they anything to do with, with me? So, but who cares, right? So, it, now, So, now, if the goal is to just get powerful emotions, right? In the context of getting us to like comply with certain halakhic requirements, there are easier ways to do that. Right. right? We can make powerful emotions in terms of, say, the um we'll go, you know, social standing in the religious community, right? Or ostracization if you fail to do what you're supposed to do, right? And there's of course the reward and punishment in the afterlife, right? If you're a real believer. Right? There's lots of things you can arouse emotions towards that relate back to Compliance with halachic um, life that don't have anything to do directly with God, right? So, if the goal is just to get enough motivation to keep the Torah mitzvahs, this is not the most effective way to do it. And if you're saying because it has to somehow be about Hashem and my awareness and my connection to Hashem, well, the greatness of Hashem it seems to be a contradiction in terms. Like if it's greatness, it's not really Hashem because it's some, I'm understanding Hashem in terms of something, and it's not that something is not really comparable to him. You see so the problem? The fear of like not being able to complement greatness. That like because it's so much. Okay. So now um, we're on to something. To contemplate your insignificance. Well then just and say that, that contemplate in your insignificance. In relation to Hashem's greatness, that's not comparable to anything. Okay. But it's still the subject matter is not your insignificance, is it? No, that's, no it's the greatness of God which results in fear. But first off, he says it results in two things, love and fear, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to, right? The desire to cleave to him, right? Yeah. I always find this interesting that the word cleave means to separate and to connect. To cleave to someone means to be connected to them, but to cleave like is to like, separate like a meat cleaver. Anyway, back on the English lessons. <laughs> okay, so... The way to resolve this issue is to recognize that there are actually three dimensions to Hashem's greatness. And that if you understand these three dimensions to Hashem's greatness progressively, this will resolve the problem. Okay? Um, Number one. And I'm going to... um, Actually, before I go these things are progressive in the sense that it is not necessary for you to understand the first in order to understand the second, but it is necessary for you to um, develop a sense of the first enough that it elicits emotional responses in order for the second to elicit any emotional responses, which is necessary in order for the third to do so. In other words, the difference is, if we're just speaking about this idea of meditation in the sense of ruling over our heart, these things need to go in order. If we're talking about studying these as concepts in a classroom, we could just skip to the second or the third. Does that make sense? Okay. Like many things in life, you can discuss the theory of something, but in practice, you have to go in order. Okay. Um, I'm going to use an analogy first, and I'm not going to use any Kabbalistic or mystical words whatsoever, um, just so we get the idea clear. Okay. So let us say that there is a person, and this person is, people say this person is strong. Okay. And you say, well, how strong are they? And you say, well, this person can lift a car with their hands. Would they be strong? I think we say they're strong, right? Now, if we were to add a detail, it is effortless for them. It requires zero toil, struggle, exertion for them to lift the car. Do they now seem even stronger? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense? Okay, now, what do our sages say about strength? Does anyone know what our sages say about who is truly strong? Eizu, yes, who is, who is, who is, who is, who is truly strong? A Zizu, one who overcomes his is inclination, okay? Can that be measured in terms of pounds and kilos that you can lift? Right. Okay, so it went from the car being a direct measure of the strength, right? In the first example, right? They're so strong they can lift the car. To the car being an indirect measure of the strength, right? They're so strong that lifting the car is effortless. To a notion of strength where the car is meaningless. Right, you saw how we did that? Okay, so let's take something that you value in life. Pick something. Family. family. Okay. How great is God? Really great. You know how great God is? No. I'm going to tell you. Okay. All the meaning in family that you find is the meaning that God put there. Now, right now, just for argument's sake, believe me. If that's true, how great would that make God? Very great, but I think he's older. more than that. That's fine, but, but that would make God as great as family, right? right? Now, how much value did God put into family versus how much value could God put into things? What's the relative comparison there? Money? No. No, I'm asking you this, right? Like, go back to the strength, okay? There's someone who can lift the car, and there's someone for lifting the car is Effortless, meaning something's effortless is relatively used, none of their strength, right? I mean, so if we were to say that, all, that how, how great is God? All the value that you find in family is that what God put into it. Okay, that makes God really great, right? But now, if we go a little bit further and say the value that God put into family actually doesn't even begin to exhaust the value that God could put into things, right? this tremendous, overwhelming significance you see in family for God, that's like like putting no value into something. Like the person who lifts the car, it's like effortless, doesn't it? So now, how great is God? It's just that even if that is effortless, it doesn't take away how great it is i didn't happen remember the subject of discussion is not right but it doesn't mean that it's not great it's just well it's almost, the, like putting value in that is relative that's right am not I, 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 so, is there any point in this discussion where we're talking about whether or not your family or family in general is important no, no that wasn't what we're talking about right we're talking about god we're saying you see family as important and we're gonna go over like that it is that value that significance right What we're just saying is that that value of significance is the value of significance that Hashem has imbued into it. Okay. And of how much value of significance he's put into family, as great as it is, in comparison to what he, the value of significance he has at his disposal that he could invest in something, that is relatively inconsequential. Okay. It doesn't mean it, it go back to the car, right? Clearly, the person is using strength because the car is getting lifted, right? but relative to what they could lift. Relative to the value Hashem could place into something. So if I'm thinking of Hashem, wow, He's the source of value, but He's, the, like, he's not the source of value in the limited sense I see in family. Okay, so now Hashem has become, to my mind, even greater, right? right. Okay. Again, at any point here, are we trying to devalue family? Is that what we're saying here? Or, no. no. Okay, good. In fact, if you, if you, if you devalue family then the whole thing doesn't start right, right. cuz that's your point of reference right. this is key if you have no values prior to contemplating god and you try to contemplate his greatness will it work no no you have to see something as worthwhile but or that significant alone takes right. that fear and love because it's so like not insignificant to god but it is just because like like as great as it is to you it's like nothing to yeah. show so, like, in a way that just makes the fear and love thing even more of a very idea. Because you fear him because he's so much more than you could ever experience mm-hmm. as a human. And, like, this love that you even have a little bit part of it to experience as a human. Well, I, to, I want to, I want to, I hear what you're saying. I want to set the discussion of the love and fear later. Because I want to really flesh out what this greatness of Hashem is, what the contemplation is. Some of the, what you're saying in, in, is, is, is pretty accurate to what he's saying. Some of it's less accurate to that idea that he's saying. It's in it, but he's saying more. So I want to just do it in order. But yes, you're right. It will change love and fear as you move from level to level. That, that is a general gist for the church. Okay, now. Is it even really appropriate to try to define Hashem in terms of the value you can place in other things No, no. so now I notice how we move right so first off I start by seeing wow Hashem like all of this goodness I see in again using the example of family that's really what that's the goodness and value that he places in there there is what as much goodness and value there is in that that's, that's, that's infinitesimal. Expression of the value and goodness he can place in something. And then, if I go, even th- go a step even further, and I reflect on the fact that even thinking of in terms of that is kind of objectifying him. Now, as I move to that third stage, I have a sense of Hashem's greatness that's very hard to articulate into words at that point, right? You also don't really have a sense of it. I do have a sense of it. And this is what's very important. This why I say goes in order, because it's not about defining things and concepts. It's about having a sense of something. If you feel that that if, if you if you can feel that 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 um, that this really great, amazing, powerful aspect of Hashem that you have picked up on that you have felt is in some sense objectifying in some sense superficial in some sense is irrelevant to who and what he truly is right then you have a sense that his greatness is a kind of re- he, 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 the greatness is not he's great in terms of like he's, he's really good at this thing like lifting the car or lifting the car is really easy it's that his greatness is that he's on a whole different Parameter. He's measured by different standards of you. Going back to the idea of like who's great, someone who overcomes reclination. Like once you have a sense that physical strength, like how do you get to a sense that Azu who is really strong, who could see like, it's right? How does a person, like it's very nice, or say just say that? How do you actually come to realize that for yourself? I can say that, we can say it's propaganda. Like at what point does a person really look at somebody who's an athlete, who can do amazing things, who's effortlessly can lift buildings and just looks at that and says, like, doesn't I don't I'm not impressed by that. Doesn't move me. How do you get to that? When you realize that using physical strength is just moving objects around, you're not really touching on anything. I'll use the word, this word human. Okay, you can see this in athletics, right? Which athlete are people in more admiration of? The person who succeeds, the person who succeeds effortlessly, or the person who overcomes themselves? Right, And there's a sense In which you start to feel like This is just superficial in its, in its essence And that's what And as you start to sense that superficiality You become open You have a sense that there's a deeper level And even if you have a hard time articulating that deeper level You become aware of it And so there's one thing to contemplate That all of the good and value I see in my life Is God given It's another thing to contemplate That, that is an infinitesimal Glimmer of God's goodness And then there's another thing To start to have a sense that Thinking of Hashem even as this Kind of source of goodness is a kind of superficialness And as you start to realize that That makes you have a sense of this That Hashem is great in the sense of being Beyond in a whole different set of parameters A whole different frame of reference And because you have a godly soul You have the capacity to sense that And no, you will not be able to articulate that into words You'll be able to gesture at it. You'll be able to feel emotions towards it, but you will not be able to define it other than to say that in the the presence of Hashem, in in, in dealing with Hashem, all other things lose their significance. But it, it, it it doesn't work as a concept. That's why I said it has to go in order. If you try to skip to that and just philosophize on that, it doesn't work. You end up with just like, God is beyond everything. Okay, so. It doesn't mean anything. Hey. it has to go in that order so what is the first step to what is the first step the first step is a reframing of the experience i have of this world okay all the good in the world all the value in the world all the meaning in the world all the morality in the world all of the positivity all of the beauty where is all of that where does it come from markly what is all of that All of that stuff that makes life worth living at its core. What is is that? What makes family so valuable? What makes a a, a vista so beautiful? And what you'll notice is if you try to start articulating that, you also have a hard time putting that in words. You just have a sense that it's there and it pulls at you. It draws at you, right? So what is that? What is it that makes something moral seem so compelling? What is it that makes something beautiful seem so enchanting? What is it make What is it that makes it seem that being together with others makes what life worth living? What What is that? It's the experience, like the experience of doing something moral. The experience of seeing something beautiful. But why does seeing something beautiful have that effect on you? Why does morality have that hold on you? No, but I'm asking what are you responding to? Do you know what you're responding to? God. Does Hashem show His self to us in our life? He does. Now, we have a tiny problem is that we often don't recognize that it's Hashem. Hashem. We start attributing it to the thing that we are experiencing it through. So I, 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 I like to use this example. I'm very nostalgic about food. Um, I think more than the average person, but that could just be my own self-criticism. I don't know. Um, so... And as I've gotten older, what I've noticed is that the positive feelings I have towards the food have a lot more to do with the nostalgia of the food than the actual taste of the food. In other words, that the food, right, tastes and textures have become a conduit to give me kind of a sense of how things were nice and pleasant and, you know, my, my naive sense of what my childhood was or things like that, right? And so what ends up happening is that those emotions get transferred to the food, but it's not really the food, Right? The food is just the means to which it's coming to me. That makes sense? Okay. So I walk outside. It's a beautiful sunny day. And it just feels good to be alive. And I say, you know what? Sunny days just make it feel like it's good to be alive. But that's actually not true. What actually makes it, what actually is giving me that sense that it's good to be alive? It's Hashem. I don't mean, and I want to be very, very clear, this is, this, is, this is where we have to get a little bit subtle. I don't mean to say that Hashem is making me feel like it's good to be alive. What I mean to say is that Hashem is giving me a little bit of a sense of Him, and when I experience that sense of Him, the effect it has on me is that it feels good to be alive. Now, what is the medium through which He's giving me that sense of Him? The sunny day. And because I'm not so sophisticated, I start attributing my feelings to to the sun and the, and, and the greenery and things like that, right? Rather than realizing, right? It's like the person who think, really thinks that that, that particular food right, is really that emotionally meaningful to them. It's not the food. It's that the food is conveying some other kind of sense, like say, the nostalgia. That makes sense? So there's this whole thing to start to realize, right, that Hashem is great. He's really great, right? Because whatever whatever we experience positively is actually Hashem kind of peeking through the cracks. Okay? But now the trick is to remember, we intuitively attribute that positive thing to the medium through which Hashem is coming to us rather than it being actually Hashem. Okay, so you remember Avram Avinu? I mean, not remember him personally, but you remember hearing about him, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of this, you know, him and Sarah, the stars of the Parsha, right? Okay, so Avram Avinu discovers Hashem. And there are many ways of understanding how he discovers Hashem. But one thing that he discovers is that Hashem is one, right? There's one Hashem, there's one God. What's so novel about realizing that there's one God? Like, why is that hard? Like, let, let's give the pagan... And the and and and, and, and the, the, the idolater and the polytheist a little more credit. That one god could do so much great. Right? Well, why not? But He's You don't a, need a specific god for certain things. But why would I think that? Well, being able to separate the value that you see in the world as not being its own existence. Right? Yeah, like, it to many yeah, I was just what, what why. You're saying that it's, that it that it is God. No, no, but the, 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 the pagans had an easy time. That pagans had an easy time with this fact, fact that like what you're experiencing in the world is like you know more than just the tangible. Thing. Like that, they were very good with that. In that sense, they were more profound than your average modern person. Have you ever have you ever taken a, a class where you learned something really new that was very um, interesting and there was like this, just this sense that, that knowledge has this, this hold and this pull and it, right? And it, and it feels so good to get to know things and to understand things, right? And, and just this sense of, right? You've had that experience? Yes. In a class, not in a class? Okay. Um, have you ever had this sense of just um, like, it's a beautiful day and things are wonderful and just, just taking in the serenity of that, yeah? Do those feel the same? Other than the general thing, I like the experience, but do they actually like qualitatively feel the same? Have you ever listened to a piece of music that makes you wanna cry? Yeah? Um, Have you ever um, felt that something was important that it's worth sacrificing for? Do those feel the same? So if we get at this kind of like the things that are really like pull at us, that really drive us, that really make us feel alive and and, and, and one of them... Do they all feel the same? No. So is it so crazy to think that, like, there are many things that make life meaningful? That we have a plurality of values, of drives, of needs that are met in different ways, and then we have to figure out how to juggle and balance them all? Is that such a crazy thing for a person to think? That's so crazy. Does doing something that gives you a sense of purpose and accomplishment, is that an important thing in life? Yeah? Um, is being there as, as part of, as, as for, for those who need you and depend on you, and like having that kind of family unit and the communal unit, is that an important part of life? Do those things pull at us in very deep ways? Mm-hmm. When those things are working out well, do we feel more invigorated and alive? Do those things contradict each other sometimes? So, it kind of feels a little like you're being pulled by two different forces. Mm-hmm. So, if everything is some kind of spiritual thing reaching out at you through your different experiences in life, then it kind of might feel like there are many gods. Mm-hmm. And what's the novel insight of Abraham? That there's only one. There's only one. The what that what you're doing is you you're 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 just like there's the initial mistake to think that. Oh, what's making me feel good is the food. Or what's making me feel good is the sun. There's also the mistake that the way this feels good, the way this touches me, means it's distinct from this other thing that feels good that touches me in another way. Because all those distinctions, all those differences have to do with the medium, the way Hashem is reaching out to me. But it's still all Him. There's one thing, the goodness, the truth of Hashem reaching out to me, but through so many different things. And so it feels different. So one mistake we can make is we start attributing all those positive experiences to the world itself. It's nature that makes me feel good. It's the ideas that I find so exhilarating, right? It's these other people that make me feel safe and secure, rather than Hashem reaching out and touching me through those things. And the second mistake we can make is to think that... What's reaching out and touching me is different in these different things because we, 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 we assume that the difference in experiences is, is a reflection of like a real difference, but it's, not, it's, just, it's just the way it's being presented. In other words, everything in our life, what I've realized is that every positive thing, everything that touches at us, everything that pulls at us, everything that drives us, everything that moves us, even if it's coming through something in the world, and even though it feels different than another experience, is really all what? It's Hashem reaching out and touching us, in this way and in that way, and so all the good and all the wonder and all the beauty and all the morality and all the, all of those things is really just different flavors, different lenses on a And so now I have a way of really contact. So he is the goodness that underlies everything. Not he is the provider of the goodness. I want to use one other analogy and let you guys ask questions. There's a famous a famous. Um, Example that Hasidim would use to explain this idea very very simple when the rich man gives the poor man a loaf of bread He is not really um, He's not really nourishing the poor man. What's nourishing the poor man is the bread, right? He's giving him something else which he needs, right? Is it that Hashem gives us things He gives us a beautiful world. He gives us deep ideas. No, it's not he gives us things. Those, what he's doing is he's giving. He's giving a little sense of himself. In that analogy, think about the way when you smile at someone, you can pick pick up their day, right? What are you giving them? You're not giving them a thing. You're giving them a sense of your own positivity through your face, but you're giving them a sense of your own positivity and that's what's invigorating them. And so every positive thing in the world no matter what it looks like, no matter how small it is, no matter how big it is, is really Hashem, in some kind of a sense, trying to smile at us. So where does anything negative come from? What happens if somebody's not smiling at you? Does it mean they're not positive? They're not giving you a sense of. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's like asking where does the darkness of night come from? It's just the sunlight isn't shining here, so. So meaning you're saying anything negative is Hashem. Is a lack of you sensing Hashem not conveying that to you is in a way? Does it become his problem is it your problem? But that's not the subject of discussion. This is one of the key things that we're going to come back to. When we talk about um, this meditating, contemplating. You have to decide what you're trying to do. In other words, you're trying to have a, some sense of the greatness of Hashem, right? Reflecting on those situations where you cannot see His greatness helps you understand His greatness, or it sidetracks you. Okay, now, if you are interested in the topic of evil and how evil comes into existence, given that God is good, that's a very interesting topic, but that's not what we're talking about now, right? right? Imagine you go to the doctor and you say, like, I have this pain in my jaw. And the doctor says, that's fascinating. I'm doing research on um, lung disease. Like, I mean, that's very nice, but I have a pain in my jaw. Like, can we focus on my jaw, please? Like, that's why I came here, right? Coming, we're trying to uh, deal with this issue of the greatness of Hashem. Now, if, you, if you're asking that as just a question in that context, which is, okay, well, I mean, there's these things that don't seem positive. They seem dark and empty and void and repulsive. and like. So what, how do I understand that? And just, I have to be able to frame that in such a way that makes this notion of the greatness of God coherent. We do that. We say, okay, not everything is Hashem showing himself to you. Sometimes there's a lack of Hashem showing himself to you. Or, conversely, I'm showing stuff to a way that you are incapable of appreciating. For instance, um, when I'm sitting and learning Hasidus with my older son, if my two-year-old is there, he cannot gain from the language. He can definitely gain from my from my body language, right? From, from my facial expressions, but right? But from the actual language and the content, he's just not in the ability to, to appreciate that, right? And so if I to insist on him just focusing on that he would feel very empty and void, okay. So either Hashem is not showing himself at all, he's not showing the way that we can relate to him, So someone else could, but it doesn't take away from this notion. Okay? So that's that first step, that Hashem is great. How great is he? He's as great as the world is. That's basically it. He's as great as the world is. However great the world is, that's how great he is. And, but, and now but what's key here is that you have to find the world to be great. You have to find the world to be a valuable thing. Right? the less positivity you experience in your own life, the, s- the less great Hashem is going to seem to you in this, in this model, this way of thinking about things, right? So, what? Does it make sense? Okay. Does anyone know how you describe this? Co- what's the, the Kabbalistic label for this concept we just said? This is level one. This is called Mammalik which is Aramaic for Hashem fills the world meaning that everything we encounter in the world, and again, thing here means it's a positive experience rather than a negative thing, because the negative thing is understood as an absence or a void. That is really not the world. It's not really something Hashem is giving us. It's Hashem smiling us, showing us, winking at us through something. And so we have to have that sensitivity to appreciate A, that it's not the thing, it's Hashem, and B, it's the same Hashem in some other thing. Now, just let's just stop here. Let's say you stopped there. How would you walk around life if you if you contemplated this to the point that it really meant something to you? Would you walk around ever feeling alone? No. No. Right? That's already going to change a lot about how we experience life, right? Yeah. What would your overall view of Hashem be? A positive one. A positive one. And you know, I want to tell you, this is going to change something very, very radical about Hashem. To the, to the average person um, who's religious, who's observant, their basic conception of Hashem is the one who makes there be a requirement for me to keep Torah mitzvahs. Yeah? If you have this sense, does that become your, your, your kind of basic sense of Hashem? Yeah. So I want you to, to appreciate the circularity of the following. right? It's really important to do a mitzvah because that's what enables you to connect to Hashem. Okay, that statement is coherent in and of itself. Who is Hashem? He's the one that says you have to do Torah mitzvahs. Now if you put those two statements together, how, what do you have? It's really important to do Torah mitzvahs so it can connect you to the one who said that you have to do do you see how that's not really going to, like, touch a person in, like, their emotions at all? There's not going to, a person can't live with that? that, 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 that that's empty? It, both things are true, but if that's all there is. Now, but what if I change that? And I say, okay, wait a minute. Hashem, right, is what makes, it's Hashem that makes the beautiful, beautiful, the intelligible, intelligible, Right? The warm, warm, the joyous, joyful, the meaningful, meaningful, right? That's Hashem. And he says, you will be closer to me when you do X, Y, and Z. Now, assuming that those two things are something that I take as very, very real, does that provide a person with kind of the emotional motivation to do a mitzvah? Right. In other words, I have some sense of Hashem which exists outside my concept of the the originator of the restrictions and the obligations of Torah mitzvahs that then make the whole give 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 new life and meaning to all of those things. Does that make sense? Okay. Now can I be um, like a little bit um, cliche for a moment? Okay. I'm not saying this is true of everybody. Th- there's kind of a cliche of the Tshuva. Baal the Baalchuva is a person who grows up secular. And um or it's a cliché about Shabbos, is they grow up secular, and at some point, this notion of Hashem starts to be very meaningful to them. The notion of God. And then they become convinced that the best way to be close to Hashem is through the practice of Judaism. So then you have to ask, well, what was that notion of God prior to the best way to be close to Hashem is to our mitzvahs, right? They had some notion of God that was kind of independent of their notion of I have to keep Shabbos, right? So what was that? Where did they get that notion? They got it from their own experiences, right? So maybe not necessarily fully consciously working this out in a methodical way, but were they doing some of this kind of a thought process in some manner, shape, or form? right? Maybe not as fully, maybe not as absolutely. Maybe they don't have all the details right, right? But Hashem has become good. In other words, they fulfilled what, what David "Taimuru Melech Hashem." taste and see that Hashem is good. And then they're interested in how can I be closer to Him, right? What's the problem of the person who often grows up religious from the outset? Is that their whole definition of Hashem is via Torah mitzvahs. Hashem is the one who commands Torah mitzvahs. And then there's a kind of circularity. So you see how the altar is reintroducing that kind of dynamic into the, just like, like you don't have to like grow up not religious. So you just have to actually make that a thing. So if you just study more Torah and do more mitzvahs, is that going to solve this problem of not having a sense of Hashem? No, okay? But now this is all which level of the three? This is all the first level. Okay? All right, level two. Do you have to wait to, mastering, to master level one before you move to level two? Right. Well, understanding may not be the best word, but you have, to have it, you have to have some sense of it to some degree. That's what's going to lend legitimacy to level two. Right? So always think about this. Anytime we learn in Hasidus that one thing depends on another, think of it like walking. When you walk, you don't move your right foot all the way to the other side of the room and then your left foot. What do you do? Move your right foot a little bit, then your left foot. Now that your left foot is caught up, you can move your right foot a little bit more. Okay. all right. How much value, meaning, goodness is in the world? Versus, how much does Hashem have available? So now, the intuitive response is to say, "Well, there's a limited amount in the world, and Hashem is infinite. So, you know, finite relative to infinite is is effectively nothing. It's like simple calculation. Make sense? Okay. Everything of that is true. The problem with that is it's it's too dogmatic. Why are you so? What Because remember, the issue is to have a sense of it, right? What makes you so confident that Hashem has, has it's infinite? Just because it's, it's. I mean, look. To be honest, like we have a subjective notion of infinity. Have you ever, anyone here ever stood uh, uh, on on the beach in front of the ocean, right? And if you gaze out to the horizon, it seems like it goes on forever. Does it actually go on forever? No. Okay. So, like the fact that it seems beyond my ability to fathom its limit is not really saying that it is genuinely infinite. Right. If you take one drop of water out of the ocean, um, does that really matter? Yes. So it depends. In isolation, no. But cumulatively, if you act, they do it enough times over, yes. Right. Because it's not really insignificant. Right. It has something. Right. So like, okay, it's whatever the goodness and wonder and beauty that's in the world is really Hashem. And okay, and He's infinitely more. Like, what makes me so confident? It's infinitely more. Where does that come from? How do I, how do I get a sense of that? Not just assert it and tell myself that that's the truth. You hear the difficulty? Okay. There's a few different ways we're gonna do. I'm gonna go about this. I'm gonna do this, I think is the easiest way Easiest way does not mean easy. It just means it's the. Okay. No. The way that takes the least amount of effort. It has the least amount of obstacles. Right. That's what easier means. It's not easy, and it's certainly not quick. Um. There's something in psychology called general intelligence. Have you heard of general intelligence? Okay. You. Some of you are nodding your heads. What is general intelligence? Like in this context or general. General. General is a thing in psychology. <laughs> general intelligence. What is it? Um, it's okay. it's just like the average, um, the average knowledge that they have on a subject. The average knowledge someone has on a subject. Yeah, like the like what like the, the average of uh, everybody has. No. Well, it's a characteristic of each individual person. Like you have a, you have a certain degree of a general intelligence. I have a certain degree of general intelligence. Okay. Different idea. <laughs> okay. So we there's a lot of different things that we can do as people. For instance, we can um, lift things. Right. We can also um, we can also sing. Is there really much correlation between one's ability to sing and one's ability to lift things? The stronger you are, the better you sing. The better you sing, stronger you lift. Or invert. No, it doesn't really work like that, right? Which leads us to think, you know, they're probably just two independent things, right? Um, now, what about intelligence? And by intelligence, I mean using your mind to deal with cognitive problems, which come in all sorts of varieties, like... Solving a math problem, solving a logic problem, the ability to use language, understand analogies, um, reason about um, you know, how things in the physical world can fit together, all sorts of stuff like that. You know? So we can do many different things. Like Some people are really good at like, figuring out how to fit different things together. And other people are really good at solving math problems. And other people are really good at using language and stuff like that, right? Are these completely independent abilities? So it turns out, people don't like to hear this, but they are not. It turns out that if you are good at one, you are more than likely to be good at them all. Does that, now, what it, mean, it doesn't mean that they're all perfectly the same. It turns out that, that you have this one thing called intelligence and it can take on many forms. And so some people work really hard at using their intelligence in math, and they're kind of like very gifted in that. But if you're really, really, really gifted at math, right, you're like good at mathematics, and you start applying yourself to some other kind of cognitive activity, guess what? You're probably gonna succeed pretty well if you apply yourself, why? Turns out the underlying thing that you were using was not uniquely mathematical, it's general, and can be applied to something not mathematical at all. Or conversely, if you were really, really good at using language skills if you were motivated to apply that into a totally different cognitive area so it turns out it's kind of like your intelligence is kind of like play-doh you can shape it in different ways but if you have more play-doh you can make a bigger thing so this is this notion of general intelligence people don't like it because we would all like to think oh i'm good at this and you're good at that but it turns out and this is like people don't like it kind of leads to a kind of elitism the person that's really really good at one thing has a lot just to do with for whatever reason they were interested in that and worked on that one and are predisposed to that but if they really push themselves in something completely different area if they have the general intelligence for one thing because it's general they could really succeed very well in something else at least in terms of the cognitive element there's other parts of human psychology it's not what? it's not like ability based it's the thing that underlies your ability like a physical ability or well it's a question where that comes from but this is so, for instance, somebody who is more intelligent, as evidenced by their, again, I'm talking a very specific thing, right? As evidenced by their ability to, I don't know, run a complicated business effectively, if they decided to then switch to something else entirely like music theory, would probably be comparably successful in that if they were to apply themselves. Now, we all understand that that's what's unlikely to happen, right? So there's this kind of like raw—you want to call it a raw ability—that then gets shaped by temperament, experience, culture, into specific things. Does that make sense? Okay. Um. So now, this is why. And you said this is actually why when you see somebody who's really good at, say, math, and someone who's really good at running a business, and someone who's really good at figuring out this thing, and we're really good at solving that thing, we always keep using the same kinds of words, like intelligent, smart, right? Why do we keep using those same words? Because on some level, of a sense, that we're seeing is the same thing, but in different forms. Okay, now, I want to be clear. There's a, there's a danger of doing something that's called an argument from language, which means just because I use the same wording... Or just because that's of how we phrase the wording, that's really a, a proof of something. But it is an indication of how you think about things, that also at the same time. So sometimes, for instance, um, um, so if every all of these things, I keep seeing, I keep seeing this thing, and I keep referring to it as goodness and positivity, and it's it's this the thing that makes life worth living, right? Why do I keep calling it the same thing? Could it be because once I get past the particular form that it's in, it really is the same thing? And if that's the case, then that means when it is in its kind of pure state, does it have any of these specific forms? Go back to this idea of general intelligence. One of the things that's hard to understand, hard hard to picture about general intelligence is you never actually see general intelligence. What do you see? You see specific uses of intelligence. You see mathematical reasoning, spatial reasoning, problem solving, language ability, right? You don't actually ever see the intelligence itself come out. It always comes out in a limited form. Emphasis on what word here? Limited form. Because if it comes out in a form, that form has limits. So I have a sense of all this goodness is the same, really just the same goodness. But then that means these differences are just the limited forms that comes out. That means that the goodness itself has to be yeah, it's not limited by any of these forms. These forms don't really capture it at all. Right? So, in other words, what, what, the way this works, not just by positing infinity, like, like it's thinking, like, what I'm experiencing is limited because it takes on a particular form. So, But if it's taking on a form, what does it look like? What is it like without that form? What does it look like without that limitation, without that presentation? And again if you want an analogy you can think about you can think about intelligence like the more you like try and like think about well what is this thing called my intelligence if i get past like its specific applications you know mathematical reasoning language use etc it starts to feel like there's this like deep well of something that i'm tapping into that i don't really know what it really is or its full extent and that the more you draw on it, the more you can just keep going. And if if using that as an an analogy, you start and think about the goodness in the world the same way. You start to have a sense that the real goodness of Hashem goes far beyond any of the forms that we can see. And so none of these forms ever really capture it. And so it transcends that. It's beyond that. And in that sense, you move from feeling like you have this very deep, intimate sense of Hashem to feeling like Hashem is very beyond and very wondrous and, 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 and very hard to, to fathom because you start to realize that you keep every, every encounter you have with him is him presenting himself in a small, limited form in a specific way, in a specific medium. And so reflecting on that contrast gives you a whole different sense of Hashem's greatness. Now, do you understand, like, you can't legitimately do that if you don't have any sense of Hashem, like, in your actual experience first? So, if you first have to have a sense of the goodness of Hashem in your experience, and then you can do this, right? It's like, first you have to have a sense of your own uses of intelligence to then start to reflect on, like, what is this thing called intelligence that underlies all of these things? And, and start to realize that it's kind of beyond you in a certain sense, even though you're tapping into it. Okay? In Kabbalah language, this is called... Seif of or how Hashem surrounds the worlds. Okay, I'm going to give you one other example because I think this example—someone, um, give me more water quickly. This example is the—it's um, probably the most useful for understanding. I think the transition into discussing love and fear, which we're not going to do today. What makes you love somebody? We're just going to talk about love for a second. What makes you love somebody? If love means the desire to be close to somebody. What makes you love them? Usually, realistically, it has some benefit to you. What? So usually, it has some benefit to you. Um, I, yeah. I don't like that formulation. I'm going to tell you why. I think it puts two things which are only similar superficially too close together. Which is um, food has a benefit to me, right? I'll die or on fun- or, or a lower level I won't be functional without food, right? But if you were to tell me that I have the option of, like, not having to eat, you could, like, give me a pill and I wouldn't have to eat in order to survive or would have to eat in order to function, I would probably take the pill. Like, I'm perfectly fine making eating, like, a non-ne- non-necessity. Okay? And I'm not saying every. Now, I still might enjoy Eating from time to time But it would be like, nice That if, I, you know, if I'm traveling I don't have to worry about food Or if you know, like, I have a busy day I don't have to worry About grabbing something to eat Like why not Same thing with sleep Same thing with a lot of things right? If you were to tell me though About people I love That I would just like you could, I give a pill And then I wouldn't Like Whatever they provide for me I wouldn't need anymore I wouldn't take that You see what I'm saying like, So does it do something for me Yes But like I think it's important To differentiate these types of things Okay um, so barring for a moment our children and our parents and our siblings we're not going to talk about those people what makes us love other people? a well isn't that just love? Mm-hmm. like what makes me want to be close to somebody? the desire for connection just I appreciate it what's that again? But I'm asking you, what you're saying, I have a desire for connection. I need somebody to fill that, that need and so I just look for anybody? No. Okay, so then what makes but me I want to... So, so, so I'm asking you, why would I want to be close to this person, whatever, whoever this person is? I appreciate them. I, I, appreciate them, I value them. They, they touch me in some way. Right? There's, there's something that I know about them Right. that resonates positively with me in some manner. There's a lot of variations to this. And therefore, I feel as a result of that, that I would be lacking or missing if I'm distant from them. I would be more whole and complete if I were close to them, right? Okay. So I have to have some sense of them. Okay. Now, obviously, if the sense I have of them is something that is false, then I don't really love them, right? And we can go one step further. If the sense I have of them has nothing to do with them, even if it's technically accurate, I also don't love them. Okay? Okay. So if, like, they're wealthy and I don't want to be around them because then I have wealthy friends, like, that, we all say that doesn't mean I love them, right? So let's actually stop here and ask ourselves, what point can we say I actually love the person? You really have a sense of who they are. When I really have a sense of who they are. So, like, as, as a practical level, I like to use the following thing, okay? Let's say I love somebody because, like, they have a certain quality. Let's say they're funny. Let's use that as an example, right? Let's say they're funny. And their humor really touches real movies, And therefore I want to be around them. Does that mean I love them? No. You love that quality. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add two qualifications which I think are dependent one on the other that make it that I actually do love them. Number one, if they see the humor as a significant part of themselves. Number one. In other words, and I see the humor as a window into who they are. In other words, what I see is not, oh, they have humor, I like humor, but the humor touches me and that makes me interested in them holistically. right? Words, so they see the humor as part of themselves. Because if they don't see the humor as part of themselves on any level, it's going to be hard for the win- humor to be a window into that. And if I see the humor as something that gives me a sense of them more holistically and the goodness and value of them as a person right then even though it's through the humor and it's limited to the humor and it depends on the humor it's still that i love them okay now in the abstract that i think is the easy thing to understand in life that's a little bit blurry but good okay so we'll do a little uh, you know rabbis are supposed to talk about marriage so when you love your spouse why are you gonna love your spouse because they have qualities like that, right? Whatever those qualities are, right? No matter how much you know somebody, do you ever fully know them? Yeah. Why not? I want to say something. You're not bad. Because whatever you're knowing is a limited, specific way they're presenting themselves right so if I'm saying wow I can sense the goodness of this person the goodness of my spouse through their kindness through their humor through their patience right all these wonderful things yeah okay but I'm not so so I'm I'm loving them right and I I, right because these things are giving me a sense of their goodness but how but my sense of their goodness is what it's limited because it's just the way of coming through those things. But what, are, what is that? What is the truth of their underlying goodness? Is it limited to any of those manifestations or expressions? Could it take on other forms of manifestations that I'm completely oblivious to, that I'm not aware of? Yeah. So now here's an interesting question, and this is a question where a lot of relationships, marriages, friendships die. Do you actually have love, the person, on that second level? In which case, you have an excitement for what you don't know about them, what other ways their goodness could come out that you've never experienced, or are you satisfied because of all the goodness you already are aware of, all the, uh, how deeply you already know them. In other words, there's this trade-off here. It is both, but there's an important trade-off. On that first level, what, you kind of have a, you have a sense of them and a closeness to them and you desire them, but there's also a kind of a safety, a comfort zone, right? In the second thing, right, there's, maybe, there's, there's more of a mystery, there's more excitement, and there's also more of a risk because what other ways could they express themselves and reveal themselves, and maybe those ways don't fit so perfectly with your conception of them or with how you function. But if you really let them that want to change very good. So that's that second level. If you're loved, So what I want to say, what I say is, is that really loving has two levels. There's really loving them because through all these qualities that I do appreciate, I have a sense of them, a sense of their goodness. And then there's realizing that my sense of their goodness is just a limited facet of them. And that the, the, the goodness of their being is far deeper and richer than any one manifestation can ever show. And so I eagerly am curious and anticipate and enchanted by what other forms this person could manifest themselves and could express themselves in. And that kind of a love is a very different kind of a love. So if you go back now to Hashem, what happens when you realize, when you start to think about and, and, and get that, that all the goodness and all the wonder and all that positivity you see in the world and all that's Hashem, is just Hashem appearing in very limited ways. But the truth of his being doesn't have to come in any of these limited ways, it could come in other ways. Does that excite you? Does that make you um, nervous? Right? It's, a whole, it's a whole different set of kinds of emotional experiences. You see what I'm saying? Like, like, and, and there's this notion right, that, that there's a love which is kind of to what's familiar. And then there's the opposite. There's a love to what is mysterious. And that's kind of the difference between these two levels. But you can't love what's mysterious unless you have at least a taste of it, right? It's like, from what I know, I know that what I know, I know, I know what I don't know is is is, is it, it's something. It's it's it, it's got to be good. If, if this little bit, this little facet of what I'm seeing of this person, or I'm seeing of Hashem, touches me in such a positive way, what would it? Who they really are underneath must be without those limitations, without those. Restrictions that taking on that limited form is going there's so much more there, there's so much so much more unfathomable there. This is this is this is just that one one of an infinite number of options they have. Okay. Now one last little thing and we'll end on this. Do you know yourself? No. So it's Yeah, but how do you know yourself? But you only know yourself through limited experience. Right. The only way you know yourself is how do you act and relate and feel in particular circumstances. And even if you can sense your, your goodness and your capacity and all those things through those things, right? You're still only having... So do you really ever truly know yourself? So maybe you should also be enchanted and curious about who you really are, right? It's the same thing, right? So again... You and Hashem, you and other... You're saying like that, that move between level two and level, level one and level two? Mm-hmm. Okay? But just to come around to saying, you don't really know yourself is like a meaningless thing. What do you mean I don't know myself? I know myself very well. I'm, you know, I'm so many, so many years old. I've experienced a lot of myself. I know myself pretty well. It's not false. Okay? All right. Tomorrow, as Hashem, we'll move on to level three. Okay? And then we'll backtrack and talk about what it means to meditate on all of this rather than just like talk about it. Thank you. you.